0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Psalm 46, we'll be reading, uh, beginning verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he was brought, how he has brought desolations to the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. This is the word of the Lord. The early church father, Augustine, once wrote, Trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to God's providence. So have you just ever had one of those days? I think you kind of know what I'm talking about. I mean, one of those days when everything just seems to go wrong. One of those days you wake up and you just think that was just a mistake. I should have just stayed in bed today, right? Where everything you touch just kind of goes sideways. One of those days where it seems like like everything and everyone is against you. One of those days when it seems like the whole world itself is against you. Well, that's really that's the backstory of Psalm 46. The text that we're going to look at today. You see, King Hezekiah, he was the king of Judah in 701 BC, and, and um, he was ruling the southern kingdom of Judah. And the world's greatest army came against and surrounded the city of Jerusalem to conquer uh, them in all of Judah. And this literally was one of those days for them. And and, and this was a viable threat because the Assyrian army under the leadership of Sennacherib was the world's greatest superpower at the time. And they were on a roll. They had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and now they're coming to set their sights on Judah. And so this was not a joke. This was a serious threat to them. In fact, the threat was so real that Hezekiah asked Sennacherib, what do you want me to do? Like what can I do so you'll just leave me alone? What can I give you so that you'll leave me alone? And 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 he told him he said, you know what? Give me three hundred talents of silver or twenty-two thousand five hundred pounds of silver, which is about five and a half million dollars today, or give and also give me thirty talents of gold, which is um, just over a ton of gold, which is about forty-four million dollars today. And so basically, Sennacherib's saying, look, you may leave you alone. Give me fifty million bucks, and then I'll right? It really sounds like a wise guy move, right? Give me 50 million bucks and I'll leave you alone. And, and so guess what? He paid it. Hezekiah paid it. He went and he emptied out the temple treasury. He took every last coin out of there and it wasn't enough. And so he began to take all the gold ornamentation down and they took off the gold off the doorpost of the temple itself so they could have enough money to pay the ransom. He paid Hezekiah to the tune of $50 million. And so this was a super serious threat, You know, him and all of Judah were scared. The world's biggest army, the world's strongest nation was knocking on the door, threatening to kick it in and kill everybody inside. And so he paid it. But to make things worse is it didn't work. It didn't do the trick. It didn't get rid of them. Because they actually came back and basically said, we're here to conquer you and not even your God has the power to save you. And so Hezekiah and the rest of Jerusalem felt like the world, the whole world, was against them. Because literally it was. I mean, Assyria had really conquered almost all the known world, except maybe Egypt. But Egypt was a very weak nation and wasn't going to be there to help them anyway. And so really, you know, they were surrounded by the rest of the world. The whole world was against them. And so they were having one of those days. Have you ever felt like that where everybody and everything is against you? All of your circumstances of your life just keep piling up and you're trying to juggle all the balls and you're trying to to kind of keep order and things just keep piling up in your peripheral vision. You know that things are just getting kind of out of hand and finally at some point it all just kind of comes caving in and collapses around you, right? Or, Or maybe those times you feel alone because it seems like everything and all the odds are against you. Or maybe it just seems like everybody else on the outside just wants a piece of you. Everybody wants, you know, wants to take a little bit out out of your hide. I mean, everybody is just upset with you for some reason. Or whatever you touch just seems to fall apart. Every time you get involved in something, you just make it worse. And no matter where you turn, and no matter what you do, it just, it's to no avail. Have you really ever kind of had one of those days? I have. I've had more than my share of those. Well, today we're going to talk about trusting God when you're having one of those days or maybe one of those weeks because sometimes those days turn into weeks and maybe even one of those years. I know, I know some of us have had years that we just we look back and go, how did I even get through that? Well, the truth is life is hard. It is. I mean, there's a lot of joy, but life is hard and things can pile up and you can feel at times like you are really alone and everything and everyone is against you. But the truth is you can trust God even when you're having one of those days. When it seems like everybody and everything around you is just coming to to do you in. You can trust God when it seems like it makes no sense at all, which is exactly what this series is about. Trusting God when it doesn't make sense. And in the first week we talked about how we can trust God to save us. Even when we make a mess of things and we fall down and we continue to fall into our sin and we repent of that sin again, but we keep making a mess of things, we can trust God to be faithful to save us. And then week two, we talked about trusting God when we find ourselves in dire need. God has promised to provide for us. He's promised to meet our needs. And then last week, we talked about trusting God to carry us through our worst-case scenarios and work all things for our good. Even the worst possible things that can happen in our lives, we have seen that God can work those things out for our good. And today we're going to talk about trusting God to protect us, even when it seems like the whole world is standing against us. And like I said, Psalm 46 was written with this idea of facing overwhelming odds as a background to the text. In fact, this psalm was written, it's a song actually, it was written in response to God miraculously delivering His people from the clutches of this world's strongest nation, the Assyrians. Psalm 46 was written to celebrate and really to tell the world about how they trusted God through this incredible crisis and that God himself delivered them. And it's really a great story. In fact, um, uh, the the Assyrians woke up one morning and they found 185,000 of their soldiers were killed in the night by the angel of the Lord. God single-handedly, by himself, turned the tide on this battle. Not one, not one person in Jerusalem had to go into the fight. This is, I mean, again, it was a great story of deliverance, and, and I want to encourage you if you if you have some time this week, read it for yourself. It's only two chapters long. It's Second uh, Kings uh, eighteen and nineteen. Uh, it, it's a great story that gives you a deeper appreciation of, of the psalm that we're talking about today, uh, which teaches that, that we can trust God when we can trust God when it seems like everything and everyone is. Against us. And so, uh, with that context in mind and that background in your head, let's look at Psalm 46. And the first thing I want you to notice is how the author opens up. It reads, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So, right from the very beginning, the psalm tells us, You can depend upon God. It says that God is our refuge. A refuge is a place where you can run to when things fall apart. A refuge is a place that you can escape to when you're in trouble. A refuge is a place of safety, a place of of peace. When you think of like an animal refuge, it's a place where where the animals are left alone. It's a place of refuge. God himself is our refuge. God is also our strength. He's the one who strengthens us when we are weak. That's a promise from God that he himself is our strength. And then God is our present help in times of trouble. Notice that God is not just our help in times of trouble, but he is our present help. That's a a really important idea. He is present. He is here with us, present with us in times of trouble. Right from the very beginning, right from the very opening verse, the psalmist tells us that God that we can trust him to protect us because he is what we need. He's the refuge that we need. He is the strength that we need and he is the help that we need. And then in verses seven and 11 in our text, we're told that God is our fortress. Not only is he our refuge or in an, place to run for safety, but this is a really important term. It's like a military term. he, He's our fortress. We find security when all the armies of heaven and earth come against us. God Himself is our fortified position. God Himself is our fortified protection. In whom we we take we find safety and peace in times of trouble. All throughout the Old Testament, you will find references to God being our refuge, our you know our safety. We find refuge in the shadow of His wings. We find we find um, protection because he's our fortress. And so right from the beginning, we're told that we can trust God to protect us. The word pictures that that, that use here conveys this idea of people protecting, I mean, I mean people trusting God to protect them. And I realized that this might seem like a really elementary truth, especially for those of you who have put their trust in Christ, who follow God. We kind of expect God to protect us. You're like, yeah, I know. We've been talking about God taking care of us for like four weeks now. What's your point? Well, the point is that this is really a truth. I think we need to fully understand that God will protect you. God will stand in the gap for you. You see, the thing is, we might know that, but we don't always live that way. We, We might know this is the truth, but we don't always always come to the place where we live that truth out. We don't always trust God to protect us when everything seems against us. Instead, when things go wrong, we find ourselves panicking and worrying. Even us veterans Christians. Sometimes we even tr- we find ourselves trying to trust in other things rather than just prayerfully trusting in God to protect us and work things out. And it, and it seems that, that instead of understanding that God has promised to save us, Instead of remembering that God has promised to provide for us, instead of remembering that God has promised to protect us, we look for, for protection in other, other places. You see, there are times when our circumstances feel so dire that we feel like we need to trust in other things like money. Like we, 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 we put our trust in money to try to buy our way out of a situation. We throw money at the problem. Hopefully, that it'll, it'll go away. Kind of like Hezekiah. million. Or in a panic, we try to find, we're trying to find our way out. We end up being in a position where we are trying to trust people who really are not trustworthy. We trust the wrong people sometimes when we're in a jam. I know a family who lost a loved one Right, and, and they're overwhelmed because they have, they have all the things to deal with. They have the bills and they have the final arrangements to deal with. And, and there's the heartache and notifying everybody and the death certificate. And there's just all this stuff. But then a relative comes in and says, just sign over that power of attorney to me and I'll take care of it. And the reality is, is they, they say they want to help, but, but, but the truth is what they want is access to the money. Sometimes when things are hard, and sometimes when we are in those situations, we find that, 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 that we trust people that we shouldn't be trusting. We trust the wrong people. Another truth is we, when we get into a jam, it seems like when it seems like everything's against us, we tend to be really emotional. Right? We get panicky. Even, and i got to tell you, this is a confession, even those of us who claim to be logical and rational, we men always want to say we're logical and rational, I've heard it. I've counseled people. They say, well, you know, I'm really logical and rational. Yes, until things go wrong. And then we're emotional, right? It happens, right? Even those of us, we become emotional. And in our emotions, at times, we try to make choices, and we try to make decisions, and we try to to do things to take the pressure off of us. We we try to take that pressure of how we feel off of us by making decisions. And sometimes, in those emotional decisions, those things don't work out, and they kind of blow up in our, our face, how many of you have been there before? You've made a bad decision when you're really emotional, right? Yeah. Right. What about like when you find yourself maybe like in a feud at work? Right. You, 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 the feud is so bad that you, you actually there, there's a chance you might even get fired. Or maybe you miss a promotion. Or maybe you're just you you're losing credibility and you worry about it. And you get upset about it. You get angry about it. right? You ruminate and think and think and think and think. And it just eats you up from the inside out. Because you feel like, you know, I'm just backed into a corner. Like, there's no way out of this. And you can't see a way out. And so you decide, I just need to do something. I just need to confront that person. I need to do something. And in your own strength, you walk into a situation only to make things worse. Or maybe you get into a financial jam. Right? And, and you know... I, that car payment's going to be late. Oh, I'm two months behind on this. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to drop the electricity. And there are all these things that happen, and suddenly you're like, all right, I'll take that personal loan at 35% interest, you know? Or, you know, I'll take that payday loan, you know? Or, or you know, I'm just going to live on my credit cards, and you just end up making your financial situation worse. Or, or how about this? I think everybody now in the modern age, just about, has faced this. Somebody you know takes you and flat throws you right under the bus on social media. Right? They just, they just like let it all hang out there. They, just, they say your name and everything. They don't even, they're not even like vague about it. They say your name and say, this person is blah, 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 right? blah. And then you see it, and then you see all the likes and all the comments on Facebook, and you're like, wow, everybody's against me. It seems like the whole community is against me, or at least everybody believes this garbage is being you know, posted about me. Right? And then what do you do? You're like, well, then I need to set the record straight because you know that's going to work, right? It just it doesn't make anything better. So oftentimes we get in these situations where these circumstances of our, our lives makes us feel like the entire world is against us. And because of that, then, we often forget that God, not other things, that God is our refuge. That God is our strength. That God is our present help in times of trouble. It's, and, and we can trust him. That's the thing. We can trust him to protect us. We can trust him to get us through. And so instead of of that, we oftentimes find that we'll just trust our own instincts. Or trust money. Or our friends. Or our emotions. And and we just find it. It's just gone from bad to worse. But the truth is, if you will truly embrace this, if you will truly just take it to heart, we can trust God to help us through all those times. Now, certainly God might direct us to use resources, because sometimes that's what we need to do. That if we're trusting God, sometimes he, might, he gives us the insight to be able to use the resources, like money, to, ha- to help a situation out. Sometimes he will even you know, cause us to, to use, um, you know, or, or lean on one of our friends, that we lean on them For for guidance and counsel. Sometimes he even causes us to to trust our own instincts. But ultimately, our primary trust needs to be not in those things, but him, God, as our protector. We can trust God ultimately to be our protector. And then in verse 2 it says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble as at its swelling. Now, these are kind of some some odd expressions, but what you need to understand is the psalmist is painting a picture, and he's painting a picture of of events that are beyond imagination. He's painting a picture of of epic, you know, events, gigantic events. Whose magnitude is really nothing short of a cataclysm. Right? He's talking about things like earthquakes and floods and tsunamis. He's talking about these big events. There are these are things that that if they happen. Like if there are things that, that if they happen, there's really not anything you can do about it in the moment when they're happening. And what the author is saying is, when these kinds of things happen, when these gigantic events happen, we're not going to fear. We're not going to be afraid. Because our hope is in God. He is our protector. He is the one we trust. He is our refuge and strength. You see, God can protect us even under cataclysmic circumstances like earthquakes. Because that's really what he's referring to when he says the earth gives way and though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. He's talking about incredible seismic events. And living in California, we kind of know a little bit about that, I think. right? Most of us do. I mean, how many of you remember distinctly the Northridge earthquake yes Now, yeah. i was a hundred miles away sleeping in my own bed at my parents house and that earthquake shook so hard it shook me out of bed right and woke me up i mean that is how violent it was and this is kind of the idea what the author's talking about earthquakes earthquakes can be super scary and the reason why they're scary is for two reasons number one is they're very sudden and it seems like they come out of nowhere like, you just are never prepared. I mean, we talk about earthquakes, we talk about earthquake preparedness, and then when it happens, you can see the same look on everybody's face. Everybody begins to panic, right? right well, that's, earthquakes are scary because they're sudden, but number two, earthquakes are scary because they tear down, they tear down the illusion of, of how stable our lives are. <laughs> because sometimes we really begin to think that everything around us is stable, even the ground that we walk on is stable. Right? The ground itself that we walk on and build our homes on and drive on and build bridges on and live on in an instant can become completely unstable. Something that, w- that is, we, we take for granted to be stable becomes unstable. And that's the picture. There are things in our lives that we depend on, that we trust in to be stable, and, and in an instant become unstable. When an earthquake happens, we realize what, what seemed rock solid and, and firm, you know, ends up being something that can really fail us. Which is really the point. When, when what is stable fails, God is stable. When, when the earth caves under your feet, and when the earth shakes so hard that the mountains are thrown into the sea, we can still trust God, because when all else fails, He won't He doesn't. That's the metaphor. That's the picture that's being created here. When things that you're depending on are are stable, be it the ground under your feet, or maybe your retirement plan, or maybe the friends that you depend on for important parts of your life, or maybe the company that you're you're working for, you're depending on them for your living. When those things around you that you depend on fail you, you can trust God because he won't failed you. That's the picture. The next metaphor is about floods. I want you to notice the language. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Okay? Imagine an earthquake that is so big that a huge mountain slides off into an ocean. What typically follows a coastal Earthquake when chunks of land fall in the water. Yeah. Tsunamis, tidal waves, floods. That's right, right. If there's another natural disaster that can happen to us, besides earthquakes, that can tear down our sense of stability, it is certainly flooding. Right? Because whether it's flash floods, whether it's a dam being broken because our state government can't fix those things, and it's a different story for a different time. Or, or whether it's a tsunami, floodwaters have a tremendous power to wash away things that we take for granted, things that we think are, that are, are immovable. How many of you have ever seen like, the, the footage of, of, of like, floodwaters and all of a sudden you see this house kind of floating by? Right? And we've seen that, right? I mean, a whole house. Floodwaters can move trees and buildings and, and boulders and rocks and cars, and it can rip roads right out, and it can even undermine and cut down mountains. And again, this is a picture of something that is beyond our control. It's not something that you can be fully prepared for. It's not something that you can actually control. But even then, the author says, we will not fear. Whether it's an earthquake or a flood, we will not fear. Why? Because when what is strong is washed away, God stands firm. That's the point. When what you're leaning on and what you're depending on And what you've built your entire life on is destroyed. You can trust in God to carry you through. You can trust in God to protect you. You can trust God to take care of you. You can trust God as he promises to work all things out for your good. Because when all else fails, God will not. I mean, if there's something that you write on your mirror in the bathroom to remind yourself... That's probably it. When all else fails, God will not. When the stable becomes unstable, God is rock solid. Which means, ultimately, you need to place your trust in him. Then in verse 4, There's a river whose stream streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her. When morning dawns. Now, this particular part of the text, it's all symbolic, but this particular text is really symbolic because Jerusalem does not have a river. The city of Jerusalem does not have a river that runs through it. Jerusalem depended upon aqueducts and cisterns for their water. They did not have access readily to a river. And yet it says there is a river whose stream that makes the city glad. A river that's in their midst. It brings joy to the city. Well, what is the author talking about when he talks about this river? He's talking about God himself. God is the river. He's the one that's, that's in the midst of them. He's the one that brings them gladness to, to his people. And he's the one that brings hope to his city. Because what does, what does a river bring? What, what does a river bring? I mean, we, we live out here in the desert, so we don't think a lot about rivers. Right? But but when you see a river, what does it bring? It brings life. Right? Whenever you see a stream of water, you will find life on both sides. Whether it's the Nile River where you look from space and you see, you know, desert everywhere, and then you see green, and you see life on the both sides of it. Or whether it's a little tiny trickle up in Dub Springs, just a little bit of water that runs up there, and you can immediately see it. When you're there, you know it's dub springs because there's life. When you drive the Lake Isabella up to 395 and then you turn there on the 178 and you get down into the Kern River Valley, you see dry, almost like desert conditions. And in the middle of that, you see this meandering green patch. You see the life that is created, trees and grass that grows. God is like the river. He brings life. God brings life to his city and he brings life to his people. In fact... That's what salvation is. Salvation is is God bringing life. You see, God did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. As a sinner in your rebellion, it's not that you're just a bad person. You're a dead person. You're spiritually dead. See, God did not come here to clean you up and your behavior a little bit so you can live a little bit better version of you. It's not like you, 2.0, a little bit cleaned up, got some of the bugs worked out. No, he came here to make you alive. That's the point of Jesus' words in, in John chapter 3 when he says that no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. It's a metaphor for a radical transformation. You were spiritually dead and you're spiritually born again. You become spiritually alive. That's what God does. He brings life like a river. But he also, like a river, brings purity. This is really an important thing to remember about running water. Running water brings purity. Stagnant water ends up becoming contaminated. Running water brings purity because it washes away contamination. That's kind of why you wash and rinse your dishes under running water, right? That's why, you know, it's better to drink water out of a stream or river than a pond, Running water brings purity, and the idea is so does God. Not only does he bring life to you, he brings to you the purifying influence of the Holy Spirit when you put your trust in Christ. God not only gives you new life... Right? He also begins to work inside of you, cleaning you up. You see, the problem with the, with a lot of people who who understand the Christian faith, they think, okay, now I got to start doing and, and not doing, and I got these lists. No, that's not the point. The point is is to trust in Christ, embrace the new life, and allow God to work in you to begin to clean you up and to change you. God will bring His purifying influence through the Holy Spirit when you trust in Him. Right, and what He does is He progressively begins to give you power. To to overcome the stains of the sin in your life. Suddenly you won't do things that you used to do. Not because you're just trying to, to follow rules and please God, it's just because something inside of you's changed. You don't say the things you used to say, you don't act like you used to act. And again, it's not like you're trying to, to do something. What it is, is it's just God is changing you, He's purifying you. So when you're saved, right? When you're saved, the moment you're saved, you are saved from the penalty of your sin that's called justification. You're justified by faith in Christ. But then, God doesn't just leave you alone. He comes to live inside of you, strengthening you, progressively giving you the power to overcome the sin in your life. God progressively purifies you. That's what we call sanctification. It's a big theological word, but that's what it means. Which is God, through the washing of his word in your life, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in you, over time, slowly purifying you, and cleaning you, you god like a river brings life purity and he also brings hope rivers in scripture always seem to symbolize hope in fact it's one of the songs we're saying open up the heavens we want to see you right you know we're talking about rivers right We we want the god's river of life to flow in fact revelation chapter 22 really kind of describes the hope of all of us who put our trust in Christ, what we're waiting for. It's the hope that we long for. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through it the middle of the streets of the city. Also, on either side of it, notice this, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yields its fruit each month. There's life at the river. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship Him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a picture of the hope that we have, that when we are finally saved fully from the presence of sin, From the presence of sin and its effects in our lives. Imagine a time when there is no more pain and no more sorrow and no more grief and no more tears and no more hurt or no more betrayal and no more worst kinds of days. This is called glorification. This is our ultimate hope when we're finally rescued from the presence of sin. And so God is the river in this text. And he brings life, purity and hope. And then it says God is in the midst of her. She shall be she shall not be moved. God, this river, right? He is he's in the midst of his city, it says. Right? Which means, this is important, it means he's present with his people. And because of that, she is not moved. She is not shaken. She will not fear. You see... We don't have the courage to stand against all the odds and against the world without fear because our circumstances are not very big or grave. We don't, have, we don't, we don't stand our ground in our lives without being moved because the odds are in our favor. We don't face adversity with courage because we're strong enough to handle it on our own. No. We are not moved and we are not fearful because God himself is in our midst. God is with us. And then it says, God will help her when the morning dawns. You see, the very God that brings life and purity and hope, he's not a a God that's far away, distant, some deity, you know, in some distant galaxy that might kind of peek in on us who doesn't really know us. He has promised to help, and He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's promised to work all things out for our good. He has promised to provide for us and all of our needs, and He's promised to see us safely home, and He's promised to be with us. And we can trust Him because of that to protect us. Verse 6, it says, The nations rage, and the kingdoms totter. Or in other words, the nations are in chaos, and their kingdoms crumble. Is, is another way to say that. Which is really I think th- the history of mankind, if you think about it, because nations they rise up out of nothing, they become powerful, they, they go to war, they conquer right, and then and they become all powerful, and then they, are, now they reign supreme, and then suddenly at some point, they ultimately crumble right? throughout history, one nation after the next has taken its place as the world 's greatest superpower I mean Egypt was the world 's greatest nation at some point, and then it was, it was Israel under the leadership of David and Solomon. They were the world's greatest nation. And then some stuff happened and they became a divided kingdom. And then it became the Assyrians. And the Assyrians conquered Israel and most of the known world. And they tried to conquer Judah. But before that happened, they were conquered by the Babylonians, who then became the world's greatest nation. But then they fell to the Persians. And then the Persians fell to the Greeks. And the Greeks, the Romans, and on and on and on it goes. In fact, in more modern times... Spain was the world's greatest superpower, then it was France, and then it was Britain, and then now, in our modern era, the United States is still the single largest remaining world superpower. But the thing is, is we know that other nations are now on the rise. Other nations are threatening. Other nations will rage. And one day, another nation will become the world's greatest superpower. That is just the pattern of history. There has never, not one time, ever been a nation that's ever survived its own success. There's never been a nation that's ever survived its own success because God has never allowed it to happen. Because what happens if a nation becomes all-powerful? Then where's our trust go? You see, no matter how powerful a nation is, there will never be a nation that's all-powerful. Because in the end, all things, including nations, will fail. Only God is stable. Only God is immovable. Only God is unchangeable. Only God is unfailing. And then it says here, he utters his voice and the earth melts. Nations rise and fall through struggle and through war and through politics and decades and centuries of work and innovation and industry. But God has the power to melt the earth simply by speaking it. In fact, one of the translations puts it this way. It says, God's voice thunders and the earth melts. God's word, God's word is more powerful than the greatest nations in all of history. And then it says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And there's a whole bunch of theology just in that by itself. But what I want you to understand is that God is with us. In fact, that's the refrain of the song, is is the, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. It's repeated in verse 11. The God who by His word can create things into being, and by his word make things melt away. That is the God that's with his people, which, which is emphasized then in the next part of the text. It says, come and behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariot with fire. What we see in this text is a picture of an unfailing, all-powerful sovereign God, which Really is the point. We can trust God when everything is against us because He, because He's sovereign and in control and has complete power. That's the picture that was given us in the text. God's people are not moved. God's people do not fear when they're surrounded on all sides by the world's most powerful enemy because God has complete power. God has power over creation, He spoke the universe into existence. He, he speaks and the earth melts. I mean, even when Jesus was on the earth, he spoke and calmed the winds and the waves, proving that he's God in the flesh because he has power over creation. God also has power over the nations. We're told in the book of Job that he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations, he leads them away. All nations, all nations are subject to God's sovereign control. No matter who rises to power, no matter what nation becomes the greatest in the world, we can trust God because he's fully in control. God also controls rebellion and war. Again, look at the text. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the, the bow and shatters a spear and he burns the chariots with fire. There has never been a weapon or a device of warfare that is powerful enough to keep God from rendering it useless. No matter what mankind develops and brings about, God can render it useless. There's not a battle that God cannot end. There is not a conflict that is so hopeless and so far gone that God cannot turn the tide. In fact, the Bible is chock full of stories where God's people face impossible odds And God delivered them from victory. In fact, the story of Gideon, another story you should read in the Bible, where God used 300 men to destroy an army of tens of thousands. 300 men. God has the power over rebellion and war. And because of that, people have always been able to trust him, even when all seemed lost, because God has proven throughout history, time and time and time and time again that he's in control, which means there's nothing that can withstand his authority. Everything in all creation, as we've talked about, is subject to God's divine authority. We've said it before, that there's not even a molecule in the universe that's outside of God's control. God is completely and totally sovereign. That's the foundation, really, of the reason why we can trust him. Because he has the power. To do whatever he wants. He has the power to save. He has the power to provide. He has the power to take all circumstances as he says. And cause them to work together for our good. And so we can lean on him. And we can look to him. And we can trust in him. When it seems like everything is against us. We need to remember God is still in control. And as we've also seen over and over again. God is trustworthy. And in this text we can see that we can trust God. Because God is our present help. And I really, really love the way that the psalmist actually writes this out and puts it. Because the word that, 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 that's used here, that gets translated as very, actually is, is important. God is a very present help. This word very is super important to us because, because this word really qualifies the statement. It actually is from the word me, uh, meod. And, and what this word means is, is not just very, but it means exceedingly it means abundant and it means mighty. So in other words, not only is God our very present help in trouble, but God can be, it can be translated that, that, that the Lord is our abundant help in trouble. Or that he is our exceeding help in trouble. Or he is our mighty help in trouble in the time of need. You see, the thing that we need to remember is God is not only what, what we need, he's actually more than we need. God's help is abundant. God's help is exceeding. When we are in need, God is more than enough, is the idea. Have you ever really kind of like thought that through? Like really like rested and and grabbed a hold of that idea? When you find that things are are just tough and and you're facing some of life's worst challenges, When when, when it seems like all the walls in your life are falling in on you, do you remind yourself that God... He's more than enough for you. Because he is. He's more than enough. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself had faced great difficulty in his life. He had went through many challenges in his life and he comes to a point, he actually has a physical ailment and he's praying and he's begging God, take this from me. Three times he says, I asked the Lord to take it from me and Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace. Grace is enough for you. God and his grace are more than enough for you in your time of need. It's more than enough to see you through the worst of times. You can trust God because he is more than enough help for you. God is your very present help. And you see, not only can he help you, but he's present to help you. He is with you to help you. And in Scripture, we see this reality repeated many times. It says in verse 5, it says that God is in the midst of his people. He's in the midst of his people. In verses 7 and 11, it says that the Lord of hosts is with us. In fact, the word Lord here that's used in, in, in the Hebrew, it's actually the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. And what the psalmist is saying is Yahweh, God, almighty God himself, is with us. He is present with us, which, interestingly, is one of the names of Jesus. They call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel literally means God with us. That's why Jesus came to the earth. He came to be physically with us. He came to walk in our shoes and and identify with our frailty. He came to live the perfect life that you and I couldn't live and to pay the debt that we couldn't pay. Christ, God in the flesh, came to be with us and to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, which is to rescue us and to save us from our sins, our our worst kind of enemy. And we are told in the Bible that those who trust in Christ receive God, the Holy Spirit, and He makes His dwelling place within us, which means God is literally, literally present within all of us believers. What an incredible, gracious promise for God to be presently with us, for God to be present in our, in our time of need. God promises to be with us. And we know that, that He is trustworthy because He always keeps His promises. And then God is also compassionate. In fact, notice verse ten. Be still, and know that I am God. Which really, ultimately, I think is the heart of the matter. If there's a verse in this whole text to remember, this might be the one. When the when the worst possible circumstances surround us, when it seems like the world is stacked against us, when we are called, when we when we find ourselves in a jam, we're called not to panic. And not to try to walk in our own strength, and not to, to fear and to worry ourselves sick. We are called to be still and know that God is God. God calls us to rest in Him, which is really what, what it means to be still. It means to rest. The Hebrew word here for be still actually means to cease, let go, to relax. I mean, the idea that the idea here is that what we need to do is we need to let go and let God. And, 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 we, and if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you've probably heard that like a thousand times, right? Right? And, and when when you're facing a tough time and you hear that, you're like, yeah, shut up, okay? But I mean, but really, but I mean, really, that's that's really what God calls us to do—to let go and and let God. We need, to, we need to rest in him. We need to trust in him. We need to set aside our worry and our fear and our tendency to trust in ourselves and our own abilities and trust in and rest in the one who has the sovereign power to rest in the promises he's made to help us, to rest in the fact that he is compassionate and loves you. In fact, if there's anything that you can rest on is that God loves you. I mean, I think that that's probably the one thing that that as time goes on, it's easy for us to kind of like forget about. Because you know who you are, right? God loves me, okay, yeah, sure. I know who I am. It's the thing that I think our emotions tend to overwhelm when it seems like everything around us is a train wreck. God loves you when the world is falling in on you. And it's easy to forget that, but you need to rest in the fact we need to rest in the fact that God loves even you. In fact, we're told that God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You are a broken sinner. Just like me. Just like me. And what you deserve because of that is death. And what you deserved was eternal punishment in hell, and what you deserved is to be left alone in your struggles and in your fights and in your worst-case scenarios and in those one of those days when all the world is coming against you. You deserve to be left alone with no refuge, with no strength, with no help. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserved. But while we deserve those things, Christ died. He died for you. Demonstrating the fact that God loves you. I mean, think about this. God crushed his own son for you. And if there's something you've heard me say before, it's probably that. But I'm not going to stop saying it because it's one of the most important things that we need to understand and we can't ever lose sight of. God crushed his son for you. Look in the mirror and, 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 and realize God crushed his son for you. He killed his son for you. Jesus hung on a cross, bleeding and in agony, dehydrated, suffocating to death, crying out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of that was for you. He loved you so much he paid the ransom. He loved you so much that he brought you with a he bought you with a price. He loved you so much that Jesus took upon himself your sins and he suffered the awful wrath of God that you deserved. All you need to do is trust. That's why you can be still. So when it seems that all the world around you is out of control, you can still be still and know that God is God. The God that loves you. The God who is all-powerful and is with you. God promises to save you. He promises to provide for you. He promises to work all things out for you. <laughs> and he's, he's promised to protect you. And as we wrap up this series, I really don't want this to just be something that, like, sits in the archives <laughs> of sermons that we've done before. And at some point you remember, yeah, I remember that, that sermon one time, you know. Or you remember that sermon series, you yeah, that really was, was, was helpful. But I really want you to take the truth that we've learned through this and through the Word of God and, and, and apply them to your life so that when you actually are in that situation, that you know that you can trust God even when it doesn't make sense. <laughs> when you fall down and make a mess. And believe me, if you're a Christian... Right? Even if you've trusted God, you're going to still fall down and make a mess. You're still going to, you're still going to make mistakes. You're still going to sin. Right? When you fall down and make a mess, what you need to do is trust that God will save you. Get up, repent, and hold on to Jesus, knowing that it's not you that saves you. It's him. Right? And then when you find yourself in need, when you find that things are tough, you need to remember, Jesus promised that God even feeds the birds of the air. Aren't you more important than them? He will take care of you. You just need to look heavenward and hold on to the promise that God's going to provide and watch how he works things out. And then when you find those worst case scenarios, when, when things happen and, and your life just goes sideways because you've lost someone or the worst possible scenario happens in your life that's unexpected out of your control and you're like, I don't even know how I'm going to get through this. God has promised in his own word that he will work all things out for your good and then when you find that the world is stacked against you that God in all these instances is sovereign and in control he is completely trustworthy and he is compassionate he loves you if that's the one thing you walk out of here with understand that he loves you and finally if you can understand one important thing if you want one more foundational reason why you can trust God the last verse here or near the last verse it says, be still and know that I'm the Lord, and my name will be exalted on the earth. You see, what what God is saying is you can trust in me because I'm going to be glorified. One of the things that we need to really take hold of is is there's a, a parallel track of what's good for us and what's glorious to God because they're really the same track. God always does what glorifies him. And what glorifies him ultimately works out for what's what's best for us. You see, God was glorified to send Jesus to die on the cross to rescue us. And guess what? That worked out for our good. God is glorified to rescue you. God is glorified to save you. God is glorified when you trust in him to get you through. God's glory and your good are really the same plane. And so what you need to understand, can you trust God? Absolutely. Because you know what God will always do? He will always glorify himself. Which means it always will work out for your good. Now, does that mean that it's going to be the way you want it to be? God is God. I am not. Sometimes we do suffer, but God works those things out, as we've seen in story after story. Sometimes we don't get what we want because God has a different idea or a different plan. Sometimes... Even our suffering brings God glory and ultimately works out for our good. In the moment, we don't understand it, but God is always working for our good and our glory. And if there's anything that you can hold on to, that's why we always say be glorified. Because when he's glorified, it's good for us. In fact, one of my favorite pastors says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When he is our greatest treasure and when we put our trust in him more than anything else. So my admonition to you as we wrap up this series is when, when you face those times in life when it all seems lost, turn your eyes to heaven and with all your heart, hold on to Jesus and trust him and wait for the dawn because it will come. Let me pray for you. Father, my heart is filled with joy with these promises. Promises that I know that I don't deserve. <laughs> In fact, that's probably the mystery that baffles me the most. Of all the things that I just struggle to really understand is why, Lord, would you rescue a jerk like me? Why would you sacrifice your son for someone like me? I'm painfully aware of what I've done in my own life. I'm painfully aware of what I can be capable of. I'm painfully aware of the fact that I'm going to fall down again and I'm going to get back up and I'm going to fall down again. I'm painfully aware of the fact that I am so far from perfect that it's in a completely different galaxy. But Father, you, you love me and you love everyone here. And you have called us to trust you, to depend on you, to, to rely on you, to rest in you. And Father, so give us a heart to do so. Give us all a heart, Lord God, to trust you with our salvation. For those who do have not made you their Savior, Lord. Call them into your presence. Call them, Lord God, to put their trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. And for those of us who have, Lord, draw us further into faith. Draw us further in as we grow to know you more. Draw us further in as we have more confidence and boldness in the fact that you are who you claim to be and that you can do what you promise to do. Lord God, I pray that you would call us, Lord God, to to look to you when things get hard. To, to be shining examples to the rest of the world. And when things go wrong, they see us looking to you, Lord God, trusting in you and watching, Lord God, how you provide for us and take care of us. I thank you, Lord, for that. I thank you for everyone here, Lord God. and I pray that you today would meet them where they need to be met, that you, they would hear from you what they need to hear, and that you would touch their lives, Lord God, where they need to be touched. And you would raise up a people in here today who are bold, Lord God, and so sold out for you and this truth that they will go out and teach people about your son, Jesus Christ. I love you and I praise you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. For listening, you've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.